All right, you legends. I don't know if you've heard, but life is pretty tough. Life is hard. And it just seems to get harder, or hard in different ways. And I think that continues up until the point that you are no longer participating in the game of life. So we have to get used to the fact that life is hard, and we have to find different ways of thinking about it, or participating in the hardship that serve us better and are less maladaptive than the ways in which sometimes we usually think or behave. Because it's quite rational to acknowledge how hard life is and feel somewhat depressed. And we are bound to live this life. We have to live the human condition. So we have to try and find ways to think differently about life being hard. Now, luckily, there are some incredibly smart people addressing these problems, and I spoke to one of them, Kieran Satya. He's a professor of philosophy at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he's just written a book titled Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Now, this book looks into injustice, looks at failures, we look at hope and absurdity. And in the conversation, I chat to Kieran about the myriad different ways in which life is hard and how we can use philosophy to help us in those situations. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. If you do, please share it with a friend. If you'd like to support the show, please engage with sponsors whose details are in the description share the show or sign up to the good to know mailing list where at some point in the future i'll start writing again now a quick shout out to the sponsors of the show better help better help do an incredible job of making therapy accessible and affordable therapy is something i advocate for if you're struggling with your mental health reaching out for help is one of the best things you can do because professionals as good and well-intentioned your friends are They are better than your friends when it comes to dealing with your mental health because they've been trained to be that. Now, chatting to them is going to be tough. It's not easy to talk about your feelings because a lot of us aren't used to opening up like that. So to the people who are thinking about therapy, I've gone and made it a little bit easier for you because you can get 10% off your first month as a listener to A Need to Read by heading to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read and that will automatically be included now once you're on that website you go through a 10 minute questionnaire and you get yourself matched with a therapist within 48 hours there are thousands in the uk and there are thousands in america so wherever you are in the world accessing therapy has never been more affordable and easy that's betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read Kieran Satia, welcome to A Need to Read. Thank you very much for for joining me today for this conversation. Uh, You've written a book, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way, which, if I'm honest, I feel like it's going to be quite a timely book. Life does feel particularly hard at the moment, Um, but it would be good for everyone listening to understand how it is you came to write this book, um, as in what is your academic and professional background? So I'm a professor of philosophy at MIT. I actually grew up in England. I was born in Hull. I, I went to university in the UK, and then I came to the US for grad school. I met mm-hmm. uh, a woman who is now my wife, and I stayed. 
so yeah, I teach philosophy for a living. And this is a book in which I try to rediscover the connection between philosophical ethics, thinking about how to live, and the kinds of practical difficulties that I think many of us are confronting about loneliness or grief or the injustice of the world around us, and see what philosophy can say about them in a way that might be illuminating and, and useful. Yeah. And you say in your book and openly admit that there is a myriad of different things that can make life difficult. Uh, but you chose to focus on infirmity, loneliness, grief, failure, injustice, absurdity, and hope. Was that tough to narrow it down? There were definitely things that I thought about, including that I didn't. I'd be curious about what, whether you have thoughts about other, other, the other hardships I should have <laughs> I should have focused on. I mean, there was a kind of structure to it, which is that the, there's a kind a path from starting with infirmities of the body, physical illness. I have a chronic pain condition. I also talk about disability, and then mm -hmm. connections with other people, so loneliness, loss, and grief. Then one's place in society, in the sense that you can be a success or a failure in, in a social terms. And then injustice and responsibility to others. And then the book opens out into what William James called the whole residual cosmos or our spiritual sense of our relationship to the universe. And that's the, the chapter on mm. absurdity, which is also about the meaning of life. So in a way, the, the topics were dictated by a, a kind of structure of starting with the body and then expanding focus out and out and out to take in everything. But th there were topics that I thought of including. Originally, I was going to have a chapter on parenthood. And mm. then I thought, well, parenthood does have many difficulties, but listing it among the hardships of life seems a little, <laughs> seems like maybe that's going too far. And also it's a topic that's it's too big and complicated to address. Maybe that's another book. But uh, someone suggested I should have had a chapter on boredom, ennui. That would have been another interesting philosophically resonant topic i don't know do, yeah uh, were there things that you you think should be on the list i don't think so and I, I look i'm i'm in no place to be giving advice to you about what you should be writing about <laughs> and i and i think when when you put it like that starting from the inside and going outward it, it it makes so much sense and i'm glad that you touched on the things that you did because i feel that the who would you classify on this because i would not want to put you in a self-help genre um but you see most people writing non-fiction books that are applicable to to one's life would kind of fall in that category they focus so much on the positive psychology side of things like what's going to make you happy how can we make butterflies appear when you fart and things like that um but you went for the nitty-gritty which i like why, why is that that's very much the orientation of the book is that the, the task i set myself was to write a book about a philosophical book about how to live and about the good life that never loses touch with the fact that life is hard. And I suppose it's really just a practical thing that this idea of you know finding your bliss, living your best life, it it's it's not just a social media fantasy. It has deep roots in philosophy. So if you go back to ancient Greek philosophers, you find Plato in the Republic, when he's thinking about justice, he describes a utopian city-state. He doesn't ask the question, well, how do we deal with injustice in the world mm. around us here and now? Or Aristotle in his ethics begins with a vision or ends really with a vision of the ideal life and says, yeah, that's what you should aspire for. But for most of us, most of the time, the ideal life is out of reach. And in fact, 
thinking about the ideal doesn't really give you a lot of guidance with the things that we're mostly dealing with, which is how to cope with the fact that life is not perfect, how to make the best of difficult conditions. So the point of it is not, as it were, to just dwell on the negative. It's to face up to reality, to sort of think about the fact that we have to live in the world as it is, not in a fantasy world. Yeah, I think you, one thing I remember is about eupraxia is Aristotle's uh, living well. Is that? Yes. Have yeah. I got that right? Yeah. Um, and this is picked up because when I emailed you, I said I wouldn't mind talking about utilitarianism because I don't get to speak to philosophers that often. And it's a topic that kind of confuses me because I see its implications in policies and in governments and and then in people's personal lives as well. So can you just um, define utilitarianism for me? So the classical utilitarian idea comes out of 18th and 19th century British moral philosophy, people like Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill. And the basic idea is what you ought to do, the right thing to do, is always to do what would maximize aggregate happiness. So the idea is you look at the effects of your actions on everyone in the world and everyone in the future, and you, as it were, add up all the total happiness of everyone involved and compare it to the happiness that you create by doing all the other things you could do and do the thing that will create the greatest total happiness. And that's a mm. kind of, it was at the time a revolutionary principle in part because it was a way of saying we can't take traditions for granted. We have to look at traditional institutions and ask, are they actually serving human happiness, which is a very fruitful, important thing to do. And the utilitarians you know, pushed for universal suffrage and better treatment of animals and aid to the poor. And so it was, in practical terms, a very important and productive, progressive social movement in the 18th, 19th century. Yeah. And how is that being seen today then? Because it's so for me, I think it's the like economics of happiness. It takes this kind of like utilitarian idea and, and that leaves to the wayside lots of individual people who are like suffering legitimately um is is am i getting that right i I think there's sort of two sides to the the limitations of utilitarianism so one is that utilitarians don't really think about justice or rights in the Mm. way that i think we should so if you're saying produce the greatest happiness if some people the end is supposed to justify the means so if some people have to be sacrificed on the way to that so be it. So it, okay. there's a way in which you t- the strict utilitarian view says, if you could save a thousand people, save their lives, but you had to kill a hundred people to do it, just go ahead and kill them because there'll be a greater total aggregate happiness in the end. So that's okay. one of the ways in which utilitarianism is it, it, taken as a completely comprehensive view of morality, a view of ethics is deeply problematic. The, the other part of it is more to do with how it thinks about the goal of an individual life. So utilitarianism tends to focus on happiness, like the greatest mm-hmm. happiness. So what the picture is one on which when you're evaluating an individual life, what matters is just how happy a person is. And happiness is whatever exactly it is. It's some kind of state of mind. It's a feeling or a mood or an attitude. And one of the problems with focusing on happiness is that you could be happy while being completely out of touch with reality. So philosophers often use these wild thought experiments riffing on the matrix where you you imagine someone, the only person plugged into a simulation, they don't know they're plugged in, and it simulates an ideal life. And they feel great. They feel happy. 
but they're not actually interacting with anyone or anything but this computer program. Mm. And they're really not living a good life. They're barely living a life at all. I mean, it's not something you would want for your loved ones. Like, I hope they get to mm. plug in and never, never see another human being for the rest of their life. But if you really just focus on happiness, there's nothing really missing from that life. Whereas mm. I think what we should be thinking about when we're thinking in a way about self-help is not happiness, but living well, living a good life. And living a good life is in part about being in touch with reality. There's more to life than how it feels. And that's a kind of focus that you get in utilitarian thinking that leaks over into, seeps over into a certain self-help perspective that we need to push back against. Yeah, because people can get obsessed and, and, and I fell for it. I like hook, line and sinker. I, I tried pretty hard um, to be happy. And like I'd, I'd heard of John Stuart Mill from... Uh, listening or reading the works of like um, Jonathan Haidt um, has, I think he is a million. It's a, what you call him. Um, and I, I bought into it, but I don't think I just thought hard enough about it. Or maybe that's just a narrative that I'm coming up with now to make myself feel better about what I thought in the past. But I, th- I think I'm, I'm more on your side that the a good life is full of shit in some way. Right. And and that, I mean, it may be that, as it were, this is again about the ideal life. In the ideal life, maybe you could be in touch with reality and feel completely happy. But in the actual circumstances we're in, you can't have both. If you're going to be in touch with reality and really live in the world as it is, you're going to feel unhappy some of the time. And that's Mm. just a matter of taking in the world as it is. We're right to be angry about injustice in the world around us. And in some cases, it's not, to some extent, it's not even clear that an ideal life will be one of just feeling happy all the time. So one kind of case of this is if you think about the pain of grief, which is one of the things I write about in the book, it's not as though if we could be free of grief, that would just be great. If when people we love died, we just moved on without a second thought. I, I can understand that there's, you know, risks to grieving too much and there's pathological and chronic and complicated grief. So there's ways in which this can go wrong. But a world in which we don't feel a moment's unhappiness when people we deeply love die is not a world in which we're really in touch with reality. So it's not clear, actually, that even in the ideal life, we'd be living lives that were perfectly happy in the sense of feeling great all the time. So a certain amount of of acknowledging what matters in the world brings with it pain. And that's not something to either reject outright or, or or pretend away or avoid or something to just accept in the sense of saying oh well i guess life's terrible there's nothing we can do about it but it is something to you, that we can't really deny yeah of course and we're being shown injustices on on tv and the news on, on social media every day you see something pretty catastrophic and I personally felt like it's been like that consistently from when you started writing the book uh in the pandemic it's it's felt like a real onslaught of becoming acutely aware of the injustices of the world so how does one use philosophy when faced with that because most people listening to this will be listening on a they'll be in the top probably 10 percent of wealthy people and lucky people in the world uh, so yeah the, the i started writing the book before the pandemic i had this idea of writing a book about hardship and then the pandemic hit and so, <laughs> loneliness and grief and injustice were suddenly just yeah. incredibly vivid over that that 
two-year period at the beginning of the pandemic. I guess we're still in the pandemic, really, but it, yeah, yeah. it certainly was more vivid uh, in the way it was just transforming people's lives over that initial two-year period. And there's a question that that makes very gripping, which is how, when you're you know looking at the the stream of terrible news, how do you face up to that? How do you avoid just ignoring it. And there is a temptation to just avert your eyes. And, and that, that's where the temptation not to face reality can be really strong. Mm. I would say that there's a contrast here that I think maybe connects back with utilitarianism in, a, in a, an important way. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of the contemporary descendants of utilitarianism are part of this, this movement called effective altruism. I don't know how, how people, yeah. how wide widespread familiarity with this is. And effective altruism has done a lot of good. The idea of effective altruism is if you're in, in the affluent 10% uh, or maybe more than 10%, you have disposable income and you should donate maybe 10% of your income to charity and or to various kinds of progressive causes. And you should do it in an effective, efficient, sort of means-tested way. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of good that that movement has done, but there's a way in which I think it misses something very deep about our relationship to the suffering of other people around the world, which is what it shares with utilitarianism is a certain blindness to questions about injustice. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the hardship we see in the world, part of what's tortuous about it is that we are implicated in it. So when you look at people suffering in, um, you look at Pakistan and the floods, yeah. It's not just that people are in need, it's that this is the result of climate change, which is the result of collective decisions to use fossil fuels that didn't take into account the consequences and was primarily something that benefited people in the affluent West and the harms are going to disproportionately affect those in other parts of the world. And I yeah. think a very important part of thinking about that is to say, it's not helping those people is not just about charity, it's about injustice, about responding to the injustice in which we're implicated. And I think when you see it that way, that the the lens in which to, to put it is, it's more, once you see it as a the product of collective action, our responsibility is to sort of focus on the collectives that are causing harm, that are causing injustice, that we're part of, and try to change them, try to engage in collective action, even on a small scale. So it's, yeah. you know, it's not that giving to charity isn't a good thing, but there, there's ways in which it's too individualistic. It's not focused on our collective responsibilities enough. Yeah. I think that speaks to society in, in general. And I don't want to say nowadays, because I don't know when the days were, when that wasn't the case, uh, Right, <laughs> but it, it definitely seems that our individualist attitude is not going to work because climate change is so catastrophic and it's happening right now to everyone in the world. Um, so what, what is your solution? I think in, in the book was, was to start local and, and to get out in, into groups and, and see what you can do to start with. Cause I think I personally spent like 10 weeks learning about the climate, which was a great idea, but also a terrible um, idea yeah. to double down on, on one topic for so long. You feel powerless, and it's by admitting that and being vulnerable and getting into other groups that I suppose you can leverage fighting that injustice to help you feel less lonely as well. And, and I think a that's right. Things. Yeah. So I, I that I think is a really great point. I, I think there is the sense of powerlessness, and you know, one thing to remind yourself when you feel powerless is, you know, it, 
there's the same sense of powerlessness when you say, I'll give a little bit to this charity and maybe my my money will help save someone's life, but there'll still be millions still suffering. And the right response yeah. to that is, well, you saved a life. It doesn't matter, it, you know, whether, I mean, it does matter that other people are still suffering, but it doesn't negate the difference you made. And similarly, yeah. if you engage in collective action on a local scale, you may not be able to change the world tomorrow or ever, but it will be wrong to treat meaningful local action as nothing. It's it's what most of us are in a position to do. So for me, that meant working with the fossil-free student group at MIT, and we had some successes and some failures. It didn't go perfectly. We didn't get mm -hmm. MIT to divest from fossil fuels, but we did, the, the student group did push MIT to have its first climate action plan, and it really made a difference. And partly that was because it was a, a situation where there was leverage on something local. So this for others, this might be in the town they live or in the school they're at or in their workplace. Mm -hmm. Smaller collectives where you can feel yourself making a difference, or maybe there's a local group that works on climate change or whatever cause it might be that for you is most gripping. And I think you're totally right that one of the effects of engaging in collective action, as opposed to sitting down by yourself and reading a bunch of books about climate change and thinking, oh my God, what can I as an individual do? Is that it's much less depressing. It's much more rewarding emotionally and sustaining to be with other like-minded people. So I, I think you're right that, that that can help with other kinds of challenges that we face as we're in this, especially post-pandemic kind of closeted, individualized uh, lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. And um, moving then from injustice, it seems only right because there is so much of it to talk about absurdity and and that seems a fitting word to describe the last last couple of years so when when face to face with the absurd how can you draw on philosophy well this for me this is sort of a very early philosophical interest of mine I and mean, i think the first time i really thought about philosophical questions was when i was a kid asking you know, why does anything exist at all? Or what's mm. the point of it all? And I, I think we do find ourselves asking those kinds of questions. And I do think in a way that the book explores, they connect with this concern for justice. So initially, the question I think is really something like, you know, what is the meaning of life? Does life as a whole have meaning? Or is life mm. absurd? And there's a puzzle there about how to even make sense of the idea that life has meaning. The way I think we can make sense of that idea, which a lot of philosophers find sort of too obscure to really grapple with, is to think about the meaning of a work of art. So it might be the meaning of a painting or a poem, where you think, well, when I ask about the meaning, what I want is some kind of interpretation. I want some story about what this painting is about or what this poem is about that describes it in a way that helps to make sense of it and tells me how to feel about it. And I think what we're asking when we ask about the meaning of life is we want a description of human life as a whole and where it fits into the larger cosmos that tells us, okay, here's what's going on, here's how to make sense of it, and here's how to feel about it. And that's something that, and if there isn't one, then life just seems absurd. So I, I think that's something that religions can offer. And then the puzzle is, for me, as someone who's not religious, is there any secular, non-religious way to make sense of the idea that life could have meaning? And that's why I think things like the, the pursuit of justice fit in, partly because I think 
a, a vision of humanity on which we're just falling apart in the face of climate change is a, a picture on which it really doesn't make sense. And you look at it and, and feel despair. Yeah. And, and we, we need some other way to make sense of, of human existence as a whole. Mm. So it's, I suppose, about the stories that you tell yourself about the actions that you're taking. So it's a, is that, is that right? Yeah. Although I think it's, it's the story that we we're inclined to tell about not just our actions as individuals, but how we fit into the larger collective that is humanity. So, you know, when you're asking these, these questions about, you know, what, what does it all mean? What's the meaning of life, the universe and everything in a way, what you're doing is panning back from the question, am I having a meaningful life? Which is, one important question. Am I doing things that are worthwhile? Am I making a difference? Am I uh, living well? To ask what is happening to the, the whole of humanity and where do I fit into that? And when you ask those questions about the shape of human history, sometimes, you know, in certain religious frameworks, you have a kind of assurance that the shape mm-hmm. of human history, uh, perhaps beyond the the world in your favor you know it's in in some (laughs) sense it's you're assured that it's going to work out in the end perhaps in some way you can't even understand right now but it's going to work out okay whereas in a non-religious context the question well where is human history going and how should i feel about human life the answer is well it's not going anywhere automatically where it goes depends on what we collectively do and if what happens in say the next hundred years is that we don't deal with climate change well. It leads to conflict. It leads to 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 mass suffering and immiseration and and you know, nationalism and fashion. Like if if everything goes wrong, then as it were, how should we feel about humanity as a whole? The answer is well, pretty terrible. But mm-hmm. we can imagine futures and we can work towards futures on which what happens is that the the arc of human history bends or we bend it towards justice. Maybe not nothing perfect is going to happen, but humanity weathers the storm of climate change. And then I think if you ask yourself then, well, is human life absurd or does it have meaning? You could step back and say, actually, when you look at human history, there's terrible things that are, you know, we're not going to redeem about the way Mm. human history has gone, but there is a, a way in which we can reconcile ourselves to it and accept it and affirm it given how it goes. So, I mean, if it goes the right way. So I think that there's a way in which in these questions about injustice and how we respond to it, not to make us feel even smaller and more powerless, but the, mm. there's even more at stake than just, you know, the, the well-being of other people in the world right now. There's how we should feel about, you know, human existence as a whole is at stake. And, and in that sense, you know, questions about climate change are, all, are also questions about the meaning of human life, about what kind of existence human beings have and, and what, kind of, you know, that, that's one of the ways in which climate change is, as people say, a, a kind of existential issue. Yeah. And the, the word absurd, as, apart from just being quite a nice word to say, I first came across it when I was looking at Albert Camus when I was having a bit of a rebellious stage earlier in the yes. year. Um, what in with him being an absurdist, what would he make of of this? I guess 
uh, yeah, well, yeah, educated so I, guess. <laughs> I mean, I think his his. I think the there's a kind of desire that for the world to have a meaning that's given independently of us. The sort of the desire that when you describe the world, it has a meaning that we can see in it that's just already there. And religions might give you that. Religions might say, no, independent of anything you do, here's God's plan for the world. Or yeah. if you're a Buddhist, like here's the true metaphysical insight into the emptiness of reality. And these yeah. are just things to know, things to discover, things to be given independent of us. And I think when when Camus says, you know, that there's this unreasonable silence of the world, when he talks about the absurd, it's, it's as if you're asking the world, what is it all about? And the world mm. doesn't answer. I think the thing he misses there is that as while we might crave an answer that's just given to us, there's also the possibility of an answer that we make and that yeah. the world doesn't just tell us, hey, here's what it's all about. The answer is, well, there's nothing it's automatically, human life is intrinsically or automatically all about. What it turns out to have been all about, well, that just depends on how human beings live out their lives. And it could be that it has a meaning that in retrospect, we can look at and say, see, it was all about the pursuit of justice and making the world a better place. That's something that's up to us. And so I kind of agree with him that that if you if what you want is a, a meaning of life that's just given to us, mm. we're not going to get that. And in that sense, I suppose he's right that there's a kind of absurdity. It's just that I, I think we have to be happy with the kinds of meanings we can give to life by not individually, but collectively directing human history and hoping at least that it, it, you know, swerves in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. So kind of in a way to look at it, acknowledge the absurdity and just understand that you have no choice, but to, to make something of, of it and not necessarily with that much like pressure on it, but I guess I think with that's... that pressure on it. I think that's the challenge is that, right. So one of the the challenges of thinking about the, say, the pursuit of justice, so looking at injustice in the world around us and thinking, it's overwhelming. What can I do? There is a sense of part of the, the appeal of just checking out is that the responsibility can feel really overwhelming, the sense of yeah. all that we could do to make a difference. And I don't think I think that's a, as it were, a, a feature, not a bug of living well in these circumstances. That's to say, I don't, I think if you didn't feel, I probably should be doing more, am I doing enough? You wouldn't be taking in reality. This is another of the cases where a certain degree of unhappiness is just part of really facing the world as it is. And one one thing that I find a little consoling here is, is just the thought that that's inevitable, that in a circumstances of injustice, we're always going to think, well, could I be doing a little more? And the answer is probably yes. But that's not a sign that you should do nothing. And it's not a sign that you're not really doing a lot. You know, when mm. I talk to friends who are activists, like as I'm not, like people who devote their whole lives to working on, say, climate change or racial justice, it's not like they don't also feel, oh, maybe I should be doing more. I think that's just mm. the condition of life when there's so much suffering and injustice in the world so in a way the, the answer is you know suck it up it's going to feel it's going to feel painful in a way but that's just because you're actually taking in reality and it's not a sign that anything's going wrong with you it's a sign that there's something wrong with the world that you're trying to face up to so 
you know, keep going. Yeah. Get on with it. <laughs> um, so, so going from absurdity then to, to hope, um, we, I feel need hope. It is that carrot on a stick that I feel kind of keeps people going. Um, luckily things are bad enough for us to hope for a better future all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but hope also gets bad reputation sometimes of don't cling to hope, um, eradicate all hope. It's kind of a very like a masculine approach to life of being like, don't hope, leave nothing to chance. Um, yeah. What's what's your views on on hope? So I, I, I have both of those reactions. So I feel very ambivalent about hope. I mean, part of uh, I wanted to end with hope in the in the book because I wanted to end on a positive note, but I also thought there's something apt in expressing my ambivalence about having a, in a list of human hardships, putting hope on the list is also a kind mm. of uh, a statement. I mean, so I do think there's, there's a real puzzle about the value of hope in that, mm. you know, there's the, 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 this is, do people know the, maybe people in the UK probably know the, the sitcom Ted Lasso. It's on Netflix. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone yeah. in the world knows Ted Lasso. Anyway, there's an episode called "It's the Hope That Kills You," which is the which, right? One of the perils of hope is that it's it's painful to hope that you risk disappointment, and there's also a way in which hope by itself can leave you totally passive. So, there's a, a line by Greta Thunberg, uh, uh, something she said at the World Economic Forum in Davos. She says, "I, you know, I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic." And I think there's something really right about that, that part of the problem with hope, part of the, the case against hope is that sitting around hoping that things will get better isn't going to make a difference. Yeah. And then we have to somehow balance those dangers with the fact that I think you're right, that there's a way in which you can't, it's a necessary condition of really trying, striving to make a difference that we have hope. I think we do need hope as a as a kind of background condition of really trying to do anything to make the world mm -hmm. a better place or make our own lives better. And for me, the, the big shift that really helped me overcome the ambivalence and sort of make sense of the conflicting attitudes we can have towards hope was shift a shift from thinking, the question is, should I be hopeful or not? Should I hope or despair? Is hope good or bad? To thinking, look, we need hope and we're going to hope. There's always going to be a, a kind of, it's going to be a condition of living our lives. The question is not, is it good or bad or should we hope or give up? The question is always, what should we hope for? And that question is, I think, much less black and white and much more practical because it, it asks you, you know, don't deceive yourself about what's going to happen and don't be unrealistic, but think about, you know, given the circumstances, what's the right, what's the next target that we should be aiming towards? So, I, you know, I can illustrate this in the case of climate change in the most mm. straightforward way, because it's a problem that you know literally comes by degrees. And when we can't, yeah. you know, hope for 1.5 degrees warming, we can say, okay, well, let's, let's hope for 1.6. And then, and never in hoping forget that hope by itself is not the end point it's it's a kind of precondition for action it's the it's the thing that makes room for action but without action it, it's not it's just idle like that that's mm. the the sort of ambivalence we have to carry on in our relationship to hope yeah it's uh 
it's a tough one, I suppose, because if people had no hope, like you would very much just give up and and that would be chaos. I guess it, it that's really right, would right. be. Because I feel like so, that's what you see when there is uh like this will be the impact of climate change in, in the poorer nations that are getting hit hardest is there will be no hope for them and then chaos, uh, chaos will ensue, right? Right. I think this, I think drawing things in the black and white way is really dangerous here. And mm. I think, you know, to some extent, the way in which climate activists have framed the debate, while understandable, has downside. So for a long time, there was a kind of two degree target. That was the thing to aim for. And I get the appeal of that. The appeal is there's a definite thing that we can we can declare victory if we keep global warming below two degrees. But I think it has risks. One of the risks is we might be wrong and it might turn out that 1.5 degrees is the point where the, the tipping points start to get worse. Yeah. But it also creates the, the false sense that it is all or nothing, that, it, that as it were, once we pass that, we might as well throw up our hands and give up. But of course, that's not true. All of these harms are incremental. I think one of the real challenges of, I mean, we've talked a lot about climate change. There are other mm. issues about justice and so on, but I think yeah. climate change is especially challenging because unlike, say, a war, an unjust war, say, looking at Ukraine, you can you, you can hope for a definite positive outcome, which would be, at least in some ways, you know, it wouldn't eradicate the harm that's already been done. But if the war ends, you can say, yeah. good, that was what we wanted. With climate change, all the things we're aiming for are of the form, well, this is less bad than what would have happened otherwise. And it's really hard to celebrate that. It's really hard to, to be appropriately positive when we make progress, because things will still be bad. It's just they won't be as bad as they would have been. And I, in that context, I can see the appeal of setting a, a kind of bright line, like two degrees. But yeah. I think it, it creates the false sense that this is all or nothing. And that is a risk because it creates the risk of saying, well, it's hopeless. Let's give up. Yeah. And it's it's a tempting thing to do. Uh, it's hopeless. Let's give up thing. People people get drawn into that quite, quite quickly. Um, I'd just like to kind of wrap up the conversation on Life is Hard. Um, as a book, because you you do have another book that I haven't read, um, yes, called Midlife, yeah. uh, yes. and you speak a little bit about your your midlife crisis um, in the book. I personally feel like I have a midlife crisis every year, um, and have done so since I was about twenty four, <laughs> um, and I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking about that. So, when that midlife crisis comes for people, or the first midlife crisis comes for people. <laughs> How do they face that? I, it's interesting that you say you've had it since you were younger. I do remember when I first, I, for me, it came when I was in my my mid-30s. And I had the job as a philosopher that I'd worked for years to kind of get to the point of job security. And I had, it had been, you know, get a job, like get a PhD, get a job, get tenure, get a promotion. And it had been this series of hurdles. And at a certain point in my mid-30s, I was like, okay, I can now take a breath. And I was like, well, what am I actually doing with my life? I, I, and I had this sense of emptiness that what I was doing was exactly what I had hoped to be doing. And yet, when I looked at it, I thought, well, I'll write another paper and it'll get published or it won't get published. And then I guess I'll do another one or I'll teach this class and these students will graduate. And then, okay, there'll be more and I'll teach them. And there was a sense of, of hollowness in the, in the grind of one thing after another. And I leaned into the idea of, of that it was a midlife crisis very early, partly because it's a funny thing to tell your friends you're yeah. having. So it, 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 it leavens the difficulty with some humor. But one thing some of my friends said was, 
oh, that's happening to you now. Ah, yeah, I had all this when I was 20. Like this is, this uh, is uh, you're, you're getting to this late. So I think it is a kind of, I think the crisis of, I think there's sort of many dimensions to it. The crisis of, of a sense of emptiness in what we're doing and the, the, the desire for meaning that can be really vivid in midlife, but you could have it earlier. And there's also, uh, for me, also a crisis in that, a, a kind of challenge in the narrowing of options, the sense that your life has a definite shape and you're more aware of all the things you won't get to do, all the things you're going to miss out on, and of the way in which the shape of your life depends on all kinds of mistakes and misfortunes and failures and kind of regrets that are now irrevocable. So I think what we're dealing with in, in the midlife crisis is really just the, the irreversibility of time, the fact that human life has a shape. So I haven't yet said anything useful about how to tackle it, but I will say the first thing to, that I found helpful was acknowledging that this was, it wasn't a, much as I made fun of it, it wasn't a frivolous thing, really. It was mm. asking deep questions about how to have a meaningful life, what the sense of emptiness could be, how to cope with the fact that life is so limited in so many ways. And I think acknowledging that you're what you're doing when you ask those questions is a deep and important kind of self-reflection is maybe the first thing to say to someone who's having that midlife crisis. So mm. like th these questions are not shallow questions. They're really deep philosophical questions about what to get out of life. And it's good to ask them. So that that's really the first thing to say. Yeah. And, and that, I guess, will come around when people have like existential crises and stuff like that. And it's like, what what are you meant to do? when faced with this and it kind of comes back to the absurdity thing it kind of it links back it do you, do you know what Karen? it links nicely into quite a lot of things that are in your <laughs> book i'm <laughs> i'm beginning to realize um so let's talk about regrets then because you spoke about regrets yeah. playing in into midlife crisis i've probably got plenty of regrets as much as i love to tell myself i've reframed them um i've probably got as much as the next person how do you reframe regrets I think there are two things that are really useful in thinking through regret, and, and they really turn on two different kinds of regret. So one kind of regret is, is the kind that comes with the sense of missing out, all the things mm -hmm. in life that one never gets to do. And it's not necessarily a form of regret in which you think, I made a terrible mistake. It's the kind of regret where you think, yeah, I guess I'll never start a band, or <laughs> you know, may, maybe I shouldn't have ended that relationship. I'm, I mean, like I, my current relationship's good, but... I guess I'll never, you know, um, there are all these other lives you could have lived. I think that's a sense yeah. people often have. And, and the thing, the way to reframe that, that I find really helpful is to say, okay, where is this sense of missing out coming from? It comes from the fact that there are so many different things that life has to offer and that we're able to appreciate so many of them. And that given that that's the case, there's a way in which a sense of missing out is basically inevitable. Like the only way you could avoid a sense that your life, that there's all kinds of things you're not doing in your life and you wish you were. The only way you could avoid that is if there really wasn't very much worth doing in life or you were so narrow in your experience or taste that you just didn't really appreciate any of it. And when you put it that way, obviously no one wants that. You, you actually, we want to be the kind of people who appreciate a wide variety of different things and live in a world where there's more worth doing than any one life can contain. So the, there's a way in which the sense of missing out, the sense that there's more to life than any life contains, that my life is limited, is really a function of something we should embrace and be glad about, even though 
yeah, the the one of the downsides of it is that given how much is worth doing in life, even the most fortunate life is going to be limited. It's going to miss out on things. I mean, there's the other kind of regret, which is the yeah. kind where you, you know there's something really there's a kind of mistake or something terrible has happened. And I think there, it I don't think there's any philosophical reframing that will that will make those regrets always go away. But there are things that uh, that can reframe those regrets by drawing a contrast between how you should have felt at the time and how you should feel in retrospect. So I think the case where this is most vivid to a lot of people is in parenthood, where mm -hmm. there's all kinds of ways in which your life might have gone wrong in the the history of how you ended up having kids. Like maybe you ended up getting a divorce afterwards, or maybe you know, the, the way in which you met your partner involved, you know, something terrible happening in your life without which you wouldn't have met this person and you wouldn't have had kids. And I think a lot of people are familiar with the thought, well, it's too bad we got divorced. And I'm, you know, maybe that relationship was a mistake, or maybe uh, it was an unfortunate circumstance that led to it. But although that was a bad thing at the time, if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't have, my kids would never have been born and they wouldn't exist. And I love them. And now I, I sort of look back on those features of the past that were necessary for them to even, my kids to even exist and think, well, at the very least, I have to be ambivalent about them now. I can't think, well, that was just terrible. I wish it hadn't happened because I don't sort of wish my kids out of existence. And I think yeah. one way to reframe regrets is to, to, to expand that focus and think not just about attachment to kids, but attachment to the particular features of your life, the particular ways in which your life is good. And to think about all the p good things in your life that you wouldn't have if you, if your life had gone perhaps better in a way at some earlier stage, but better, but just wildly different. And I think there's mm -hmm. a real danger in here in a kind of abstraction where you, you sort of step back from your life and all the particular things in it that really matter to you and say, well, life could have been better. Well, true, it could always have been better, but the more you take that abstract perspective, the less you'll have access to this sort of source of affirmation that we have, which is just paying attention to the particular people we love and the particular connections in our lives and the particular good things we've done, which may not be the best, it could always have been better. But I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. And I think we have to, as it were, lean into attending to the world around us, our actual world. And that not just with kids, but with other aspects of life can operate as a, a counterweight to, to regret. Yeah. See, I, I came across you on Sam Harris's podcast. I think it was um, to begin with. And it seems to me that a lot of ways in which philosophy could guide us when, when things are tough is, is simply a case of guiding where you put your attention. I think that's right. I think that the, the this huge amount of what I think philosophical work consists in is not, this is, I think, about the relationship between self-help too. Because when you think of mm -hmm. self-help, you might think, here are three quick tips for getting over grief. I think, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, sometimes that can be helpful. But what philosophy usually offers in the first instance is attention to what's going on in a way that yeah. describes your experience that hopefully rings true to someone experiencing grief or loneliness or infirmity that describes the experience in a way that that brings out what where to pay, pay attention what to focus on what not to focus on and so 
I think a lot of philosophical work is really like that. It's it's mm. descriptive, analytical. It's about paying attention to things and how to understand them rather than some glib theory that you then, you know, you just apply to whatever problem you face, which is in a way why, you know, in, in the midlife crisis book, I say, well, there are many midlife crises and we have to deal with them separately. And in the book on life is hard, my approach is not, here's one key that will solve all of life's hardships. It's okay, let's have a chapter on infirmity, loneliness, grief, failure. Each one requires attention of its own mm. because they're different kinds of difficulties. And I, I think you're absolutely right that that's a, a kind of central philosophical project is to pay attention to things and direct your attention in the right kind of way. Yeah. And uh, do you meditate? Do you train your attention at all? I do. I'm, I'm really bad at it. It's funny. A funny thing about meditation is that I, I, I've never been one of those people who does huge, arduous meditations. I do mindfulness yeah. meditation in short bursts. Yeah. I do. I, and when it's going well, I do it for a short time every day. And yeah. it's great. And it does, I think, help me to focus on the present. And it helps me to just sort of distance myself from certain kinds of anxiety about the future and kind of pro being project driven and helps me to attend mm. to myself and what's happening right now and then attend sort of carry that into the world around me what what i find you know perplexing about meditation is just how hard i find it to maintain a habit where in i know it's good for me mm. i know it's helping me in my relationships with other people the amount of time devoted to it when i do it isn't huge and yet it is challenging somehow. And so, so the answer is yes, but not as much as I, not as consistently as I wish I did. Yeah. Well, being a mind trapped inside a body is tough enough. When you let it settle, it gets even harder sometimes. I think um, be, being able to meditate consistently is, is great. But take it from me, I, I did like 700 and something days and tracked it and did it on the head straight headspace streaks. And I think it completely ruined my life for a long time. Cause every day that's all I was thinking yeah. about as soon as I got oh, up, right. it kind of defeated the point of, of being like mindful. So it's kind of like getting a balance with it seems to be a really good idea, but like with everything else, uh, yeah, yeah. Like balance about, is tough. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. There's something really deep about that, which is that if you're thinking, I want to become less project driven. I want to be able to just stop thinking about what I'm going to achieve next and just dwell in the moment and pay attention to what's happening now and the people around me now. So I'm going to get a meditation app and set myself the project of doing it every day. <laughs> there's a, there is a way in which it, yeah, it's, there's something self-defeating about that. So the, the, there's a real trick to, to maintaining the consistency without it becoming yet another project that you feel burdened by that's yet another thing to be anxious about that's really interesting yeah it's uh i don't know if you've watched bo burnham inside um on netflix yeah. one of his songs he says stunning 8k resolution meditation app which is like on a, a long list of things that he probably finds pointless um, <laughs> and it is, it is so funny that it's been like commodified packaged and, and sold and bought to you and he's like 10 minute slices that you must do every day. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny. And, it, and so I'm, I'm it, like many social media things, I'm ambivalent about it and that it's clearly incredibly valuable to make it, it in fact does mm. make it much easier for people to access yeah. ideas and practices that otherwise you might feel, you know, you don't know where to go. You don't know how to, to find that community. 
on the other hand, you know, it's like the way in which you can you can make genuinely keep in touch with old friends on Facebook. Yeah. But you can also get obsessed with, you know, the, the how many likes your last post got and you know what other people are doing. And there's there's a, a kind of management problem with that comes with those kinds of social media things that I, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't want the negatives to completely uh obscure the value, but yeah. it's very hard to manage them properly. Yeah, definitely. I, I find that at times and especially with technology and, and how it sort of seeps into our lives in different ways. And like I think I'm maybe one of the last generations to remember a childhood that was relatively tech tech free. Um right. And that that worried me a bit, but I've got ten ten minutes left with you, um, Kieran. <laughs> and I'd be begrudged not to ask you who would be your one philosopher to turn to when times are tough. Oh, for me, the the can't say yourself. Oh, definitely not. No, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> hopefully other people can find help helping with what I'm doing. I do find, like many people, rereading my own stuff. It's you know, it's very easy to be aware of the imperfections and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. A, a certain amount of self-forgiveness is in order. But no, the philosopher <laughs> I, I love and I, it, who is really the presiding spirit in a way of, of my new book is Iris Murdoch. Mm. The, she's a novelist as well as a philosopher. And I, I like her novels too. They're uneven. Some are better than others. But as a philosopher, I think she is one of the great theorists of attention. She was very influenced mm. by the French philosopher, Simone Weil, who talks mm. about the centrality of attention to others and attention to the world. And the idea of reading the world and, and reading it yeah. well as being central to ethical experience. And Murdoch, she's, it's tricky. She has a book called The Sovereignty of Good, which mm. I is one of the few philosophy books that I reread for consolation like by an academic philosopher uh, at least at the time she was an academic philosopher or just just leaving academic philosophy where i will read it when i'm feeling down because this it's both enlightening and genuinely uplifting i do it's i've recommended it to non-philosophy academic types and it's 50 50 some people mm -hmm. it's it's a bit you know it, there's a little bit of jargon it's embedded in a conversation that was happening in philosophy in the 1960s and you have to get over the sense that There'll be a bunch of references that you just have to not worry about. If you can get over that, I think it's really a wonderful, moving book. And it's, yeah, for me, that's something I go back to as a, a model for how I would like to do philosophy, but also just a book that I, when I read that book, I feel inspired and, uh, well, I guess I feel happier afterwards, but I, I also feel inspired to do something to make my own life better and make other yeah. people's lives better. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a beautiful book, I think. Yeah. Well, it sounds, sounds like a powerful book. I'll definitely check it out. Just a note on what you said there about reading it and, and having to skip past a few references. That seems to me how an untrained eye kind of has to read any philosophy book, like a, a hard philosophy book, one of the ones in the penguin classics or something like that. Um, yeah. I, you have to just think, skip over it. It's in words, full sentences sometimes. <laughs> I, and I think it's really, I, I think there are, sometimes it's useful to read an introduction to Aristotle before reading Aristotle or an introduction mm. to Plato before reading Plato. But I actually think there's a lot of value in just reading the way you just described, where you just say, I'm just going to read this and stuff is going to make no sense to me. I think more often than not, if you power through at the end of reading, uh, even a quite difficult kind of 
classic work of philosophy, you feel changed by it and you can start to think you know, there'll be things that stay with you amidst all the bits that seemed complicated. And uh, so, yeah, I think there's real value in just you know reading the classic texts without worrying about the fact that you won't get everything. I mean, no. part of the open secret here is that professors spend their whole lives reading these books and they also have lots of bits that they don't understand or they disagree with other interpreters about so a kind of a transparent reading experience where there's no difficulty is not something that anyone is really having with these classic philosophical works that's again you know i think just accepting that is part of of uh, and forgiving yourself for it is part of approaching them in a in the right way yeah, that's good because I had to do that with the introduction to Heidegger. I was skipping over things, even on the introduction, so I didn't touch yeah. <laughs> anything properly. <laughs> um, Kieran, it's been really great chatting to you. Um, I'm really, really privileged to have had this conversation. Where can people find your book? What you got going on? This is so the, time. The, <laughs> I, I am yeah. So the if you if you Google me, the book will turn up. My my I have links to places to buy it on my website. I'm on Twitter at, at Kieran Setia, and there's links there too i have a i have a podcast which i started during the pandemic cool. as as a as a way to combat loneliness it's called five questions so i interview philosophers in a in a more personal way than a lot of philosophy podcasts i ask them what they're afraid of and how their temperament affects their work it's also inspired mm -hmm. by iris murdoch these are questions she asked about uh she said it was it's good to ask about a philosopher uh what is he afraid of and so it's fun to ask go and ask a bunch of contemporary philosophers what are you afraid of um, and I have a Substack, and I have links to the book and other essays I've written on my website. So probably Twitter is e an easy place to find me or just Google my name and it will take you to my, my homepage. Cool. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Kieran. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk to you. I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think that was a really good podcast. And hopefully you agree. That is all from me. Love you. Goodbye.